The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV shops or reviews, along with news and opinions, got the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who wants those mother-freaking snakes off his mother-freaking plane, because with me is a guy who I just cannot believe has put up with me for 200 episodes of this show, because with me is the Quatsit to my Sherlock, because with me is a guy who is into all the cosplay that goes on on the Comic-Con floor, and of course with me is the guy who stopped a nuclear bomb from going off in New York City with absolutely no idea what he was doing. Can with me is a guy who knows not to fall out of helicopters when wearing a Santa suit. Can with me is a guy who is always ready with a grenade. Can with me is a guy who plays a really mean Max guitar. My co-host and jukebox hero. Can with me is a guy who has not been replaced by a Zygon. Can with me is a guy who thinks it was about time for heroes to wrap itself up. Can with me is a guy who is shocked to discover that his former master is Darth Vader. Can with me is a guy who has a Fear of Horta Party, thanks to the Equals. Get with me, because the guy who just wants to believe. My co host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we continue the fall 2016 TV season with our review of the brutal Walking Dead season 7 premiere, an episode of Star Wars Rebels, Westworld, and Michael and Tim's Supernatural review. But before all that, we're going to kick it off with the News with Nico section. Walking Dead renewed for season 8. AMC is jumping the gun on another year of The Walking Dead, ordering an 8th season of the zombie smash in the week before the debut of season 7. Additionally, the Chris Hardwick-hosted companion series Talking Dead has been also picked up for another season as well. Walking Dead season 8, which will once again consist of 16 episodes, will launch in fall 2017. With the series' 100th episode, Scott M. Gimple will return as showrunner, and The Walking Dead's 7th season kicked off this Sunday and is reviewed in this episode. The Walking Dead is using body doubles to fool spoiler seekers. Fans of The Walking Dead are dedicated to digging up spoilers on what's coming up on the show. There are websites devoted to stalking the show's set that are consistently reporting on the goings-on during production. They're like detectives, it's insane. But they're finally meeting some resistance. The Walking Dead as a production matches this insanity on the same level, taking extreme measures to protect its story from, from fans' prying eyes. And The Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman just revealed even more about what the production is doing to throw people off the scent. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Kirkman said that the production has employed body doubles in places to make people think that they are in places that they're not. So that photo from the set you saw of Daryl riding his motorcycle or whatever might not be real. It may have been some random dude in a Norman Reedus wig. Kirkman also confirms that The Walking Dead did not send advanced screeners of this week's premiere to journalists in an effort to keep spoilers from leaking. They did not want a Game of Thrones Season 5 issue on their hands. I have to say, their efforts worked as I had not heard any spoilers before watching the gut-wrenching Season 7 premiere we review later in this episode. Star Wars Han Solo film has cast its Lando Carizine. We've known for the past couple of years at this point, but it's a good time to be a Star Wars fan. Not only is this due to The Force Awakens and Star Wars Rebels being great, and Rogue One, a Star Wars story, looking like it's going to be really great, but also because we'll never have to be far away from another new movie. With Episode 8, the young Han Solo film right around the corner, and another one after that, and Episode 9, and every year we're going to get new Star Wars. On Friday afternoon, after another super exciting piece of the next anthology movie, entry was put into place with the announcement that Donald Glover has indeed been cast as the cape-clad scoundrel Lando Calrissian. The news came from Lucasfilm directly on Friday, shared via StarWars.com, and the untitled Han Solo movie's director Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. The movie will depict Lando in his formative, much more scoundrelly days prior to winning and operating Cloud City, and way before he was anything close to the general in in the Rebellion. Glover had long been the rumored and assumed actor to take on the role, and I think it's a pretty solid choice. He's just got that look already of a young Billy D. Williams, and I like that he's a Star Wars fan. New Assassin's Creed trailer brings the action to the past and present. Assassin's Creed movie has snuck up on us like a killer in the shadows, and now it's just over two months away. The new trailer has just dropped this week, and Michael Fassbender faces dangers in two eras. Much like the Ubisoft video game series that spawned it, the core storyline of Assassin's Creed doesn't deal with time travel. Instead, Fassbender's character, Calum Lynch, his experiences in the past are archived through the Animus device, which allows him to relive the memories of his ancestor in 15th century Spain. As you can see in the new trailer, Calum didn't exactly 
automatically volunteer for this procedure. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, he's already dead. Caleb isn't the only one who has a counterpart in the past within this film. Michael K. Williams plays Musa in the present, and the Haitian assassin Baptiste in the past, while Matias Varela portrays Amir in the modern sequences and Yusuf in the past. The trailer also gives a glimpse of Marion Cotillard's Sophia Rikin, the head scientist of the Abstergo Foundation that forced Caleb to endure the Animus Project. Unfortunately for his enemies, they inadvertently given Caleb the means to fight back with all the skills of his ancestor. This is very reminiscent of the Desmond story arc from the first four Assassin's Creed games, and I'm really looking forward to this film. I can't wait for December 21st. Director Tim Miller has exited Deadpool 2. Earlier this week, the domino casting rumors for Deadpool 2 seemed to indicate that the sequel to this year's blockbuster R-rated superhero film was on track to begin filming in early 2017, but now the sequel to Deadpool is reportedly going forward without Tim Miller, the director of the original film. Deadline broke the story about Miller's departure from Deadpool 2, reportedly due to creative differences between Miller and Ryan Reynolds, the actor who portrayed Deadpool, and pushed hard for the first film over the course of a decade. However, the split between Miller and Reynolds appears to have been largely amicable, and Miller will be moving over to direct an adaptation of David Suarez's Influx for Fox. Deadpool was Miller's live-action directorial debut after a long career as a visual effects artist and animator. Miller is also widely credited as having a large role in capturing the tone of Deadpool along with Reynolds and the screenwriting duo of Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. Reynolds, Reese, and Wernick will remain on the sequel, but if the film's going to make its 2017 start date, a new director needs to be named pretty quickly. I just hope that the new director can capture the same feel as Miller did in the first film. It was too good to lose all of that because of a change in director. Jessica Jones Season 2 will feature only female directors. Marvel's Jessica Jones was the first female heroine to headline her own show in the MCU, and the series also broke new ground with its depiction of Jessica as a very damaged but ultimately triumphant heroine. While the second season may be over a year away, showrunner Melissa Rosenberg has revealed that Jessica Jones will continue to push TV forward next season with a lineup of all-female directors. Variety broke the story, which Rosenberg announced on Friday during the Transforming Hollywood 7 Diversifying Entertainment Conference at USC. Rosenberg didn't reveal the names of the female directors who had signed on for season two, but we wouldn't be at all surprised to see S.J. Clarkson, Rosemary Rodriguez, and Uda Brieswitz returning from the first season. According to Rosenberg, she didn't initially plan to go with only women as directors, but she loved the idea when it was pitched to her and decided on it. Rosenberg was one of four female writers on the staff of the first season of Jessica Jones, and we wouldn't be surprised at all if that number goes up for the second season as well. This is a great move towards sexual equality in the film and television industry, especially in roles that have long been male-dominant like writers and directors. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Alright, we're going to kick this week's reviews off with that brutal, just heart-wrenching Walking Dead Season 7 premiere entitled The Day Will Come When You Won't Be. In the seventh season premiere, Negan's actions will haunt the surviving members of Rick's group forever. Holy hell, that was a tough episode to watch. The season six finale ended with Negan bashing the brains in of one of Rick's group, but we didn't find out who that person was until last night in the season seven premiere. Prior to the premiere, it seemed fans were of two minds regarding this cliffhanger. One was that it would be nothing more than a disappointing and obvious ratings grab, and the other was that the season premiere would be just nuts and intense. Negan himself, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, promised fans at Denver Comic Con earlier this year that the wait would most certainly be worth it. So going into last night's premiere, we knew that we'd find out which of our people died at the hands of Negan, and I thought I was prepared for that. In fact, I was even relieved when it turned out to be Abraham. Sure, he'd seen some great character development last season, but the writing had been on the wall, in my opinion, with his apparent random change of girlfriends from Rosalie to Sasha for no apparent reason toward the end of the last season. That had me fairly certain that he was on the shortlist for those that could be the one that dies at the hands of Negan. But I should have known better. The writers, showrunners, and producers were just toying with us from the very beginning of the episode with their camera angles, selective reveals of which characters were still alive, and then cutting to the title sequence without even revealing who had died. For a moment or two, I thought they may drag it out until the very end of the episode. When they did finally show Negan bash Abraham's head in, again, I was relieved that it wasn't Glenn, Maggie, Daryl, or Michonne. I thought, alright, this is brutal, but we survived with an acceptable loss. He wasn't one of my favorites. I can relax and see what the rest of the season story arc is going to be set up to be in the rest of this premiere. Okay. I'm okay.
Again, holy hell was I wrong. In the cold open, we see that after killing someone who we later found out was Abraham, Negan takes Rick on a come-to-Jesus trip onto a fog-filled zombie walk. When Negan took Rick's hatchet, my dad and I both looked at each other and said, oh god, is this where he's going to lose his hand? That, of course, is a reference to Rick losing his hand in the comics when he was bit by a zombie and they had to cut it off to prevent the infection, which was substituted on the third season with Herschel in his leg instead. Again, later in the episode when Negan forces Rick to cut off Carl's arm or see all his friends killed, I questioned, are they going to substitute someone else for Rick's losing his hand again? But this time, Negan pulled an Abraham and Isaac move instead and stopped Rick once again after he realized he'd finally broken Rick's defiance. But remember when I said it felt like the showrunners were messing with us? Well, it turns out that after the come to Jesus jaunt in the fog, we jump back in time to actually see Negan kill Abraham. This is that moment I described as being relieved that it was only Abraham. But then Daryl fought back, and for a brief moment, I thought he was a goner as well. When Dwight came up with Daryl's crossbow, I couldn't help but think, no, no, not with his own crossbow. But no, Negan realized that someone like Daryl is too useful to kill without at least trying to tame him first. Rather, he decided to take Daryl's breaking the rules out on someone else. His transition from talking to bashing Glenn's brains out was so quick that it completely caught me off guard. This scene so closely resembled the scene from the comics, even with the blown out eye. I just popped your skull so hard, your eyeball just popped out! This scene in last night's premiere transported me back to issue 100 when Negan killed Glenn in the comics and the instant rage that issue evoked. However, it is because of those emotions that this episode works so well. Much of the rest of the episode felt like a dazed, cloudy, hard-to-focus affair. Essentially the same feeling each of our people were feeling in the episode. So why did the producers do this to us? Well, according to Scott Gimple, it was for our benefit. <laughs> Seriously, Scott? You're killing me. Entertainment Weekly quotes the show's producer, Scott Gimple, as saying that not only did they want to depict something so horrific that it would break Rick, but that it would break us, the audience, as well. That's right. Just like we've always suspected, Scott Gimple wanted to break us. Quote, not in a way that is any way to hurt them, he explained on Talking Dead, but for them, us, the audience, to believe that Rick Grimes would be under the thumb of Negan, that he would go through an experience that would do that to him, that the audience would go through the experience too, so that they would believe that Rick could do what this guy says. Essentially, the horror that Rick and the audience went through watching it was meant to put us, as the viewers, in the same mind frame as Rick, having been broken by Negan and willing to go along with his plans. Rick did not just lose Glenn and Abraham last night, he lost his will to fight back. He knows that he is Negan's now, and the audience needed to realize that as well. It's cruel, but it sort of makes sense. By keeping us in the dark about who died, we entered into the season premiere feeling far more scared, worried, angry, and vulnerable than we would have if we knew who Negan killed last season. That cliffhanger made the episode start on an incredibly tense note, so by the time Rick was ready to hack off Carl's arm, we not only believed that Rick would make a choice like that, but we felt the impossibility and cruelty behind the choice Negan forced him to make. Gimple was more diplomatic about the experience and, and losses, but Robert Kirkman said before the episode even aired that he didn't care if the audience was upset by who died. He wants to tell his story, not the story the audience or fans think they want, but his story and the best story. As I said, Scott Gimple was much more diplomatic about it. He said he was saddened to hear and see online the responses that people would no longer be watching the show and said, quote, we have a lot more to do and we're setting the stage for more to come. And along those lines, we will see Morgan arrive in the kingdom next week and possibly form an alliance with them against Negan and his crew to build towards an all-out war by season's end or next season. Before the season started and over the summer break, basically Kirkland and Gimple have said that they wanted the show to have two feels, before Negan and after Negan. Well, we are clearly headed towards the after Negan. Also, the one surviving member of the Green family stepped up in a big way at the end of the episode, as Maggie pushed past the death of her true love, Glenn, and the issues she was having with the baby, which I initially thought could be an ectopic pregnancy, but I'm not sure they're going to go that route now. But she pushed past all of that to literally stand on her own two feet. Last season, Rick pointedly gave Maggie leadership training, first trusting her to take point with Deanna in Alexandria, then with Gregory at the Hilltop community. He told her there would come a day when he wouldn't be able to lead, and she'd have to step up. Well, it looks like today is that day, and Maggie is going to have to build her own secret Negan revenge squad. Finally, before we go, I wanted to touch on a few of my my favorite Glenn moment since he was both Dan and my favorite character both in the comics and the show. Obviously our introduction to Glenn in the pilot saving Rick and then Rick and Glenn discovering the cover yourself in zombie blood camouflage technique was where we first fell in love with Glenn. His awkward courtship with Maggie was beautifully done especially that run they went on and the whole condom scene in the drugstore was hilarious and sweet at the same time. Also memorable was his encounter
dinner with the governor when the governor threatened Maggie and forced them to strip in front of him as part of a power play. Last season's Glenn's death fakeout was brilliantly done, as was his return afterwards with Enos. Another great Maggie and Glenn moment was when they were reunited after the prison in the train tunnel and the relief both they felt and we felt when it happened. There are so many Glenn moments over the years, but these are the ones that stood out to me as I was recapping this episode and thinking about it. Well, I guess that's about all I have to discuss about this week's Walking Dead. Please, everyone, I need your help reviewing Walking Dead. Send me your thoughts about the episodes on Facebook Messenger. Send them to Across the Airwaves page. Send me emails at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Or best yet, send a voicemail in to 773-809-3363. 773-809-3363 to be on the episode each week or next week. Make sure to get all your thoughts in to me by 12 noon Pacific time on Mondays to make it into the episode. Without Dan to discuss the episodes with me, I need your help to make the discussions better. So please, leave me a message. And that goes for any of these shows that we're covering on the main ATA show. Dan and I love talking about these shows, and these are the shows that Dan and I were really passionate about and don't fit into either DC or Marvel. So send me your thoughts on it. Be a part of the show. Continue Dan's legacy by helping me continue covering the shows that he loved. Alright, now I'm going to talk about another show that Dan and I love talking about because we love Star Wars and that's Star Wars Rebels with the fifth episode of the third season entitled The Last Battle. On a salvage mission led by Captain Rex, the Ghost Crew is captured by a unit of old battle droids determined to fight one last battle to end the Clone Wars. This week's episode of Rebels was almost like a mashup of Rebels and Clone Wars, as Ezra, Kanan, Rex, and Zeb went on a recon mission to the wreckage of an old Clone Wars battle in search of ordnance, supplies, and weapons. What they found was a battalion of non-shutdown battle droids and a super tactical droid. I liked the idea of getting to see the Rebels take on the enemy from Clone Wars by going up against battle droids. It was interesting to hear Ezra comment about how easy the battle droids were to kill, and Rex and Kanan put him in his place by explaining that they usually would just keep coming and coming and coming, and this was not what the Clone Wars was like, which, since we've watched the series, we could attest to that as well. Ultimately, this episode pitted Captain Rex against a super tactical droid, General Kalani, and his squad of battle droids. The catch? The droids were marooned on a planet and didn't know the Clone Wars were over. In fact, being extremely intelligent, Kalani interrupted the shutdown command issued after Order 66 was completed because he thought it was a Republic trick. The episode featured a ton of touchstones from the original Clone Wars series, like that credit music, oh, that was awesome, and explored some really heavy issues about the meaning of war, the duty of human and droid soldiers, and an exploration of artificial intelligence and whether they have feelings. Also, Ezra asked the question we've all been asking since Phantom Menace, who's Roger? This episode delved deep into the parallels between the Separatist battle droids and the Republic clone troopers. Both were created to be fodder in a war. They both were manipulated and wasted in the same way. So many droids and lives were lost, and oh, only because Palpatine used everyone as pawns in his game. Ultimately, it was Ezra, someone who was not involved in the Clone Wars, that came to the realization that no one except Palpatine won. Essentially, the war game in this episode, the last battle of the Clone Wars, if you will, and that whole business is fascinating commentary on what the war meant and what everyone fought for. You can see the layers as the fight plays out. Kalani has a wealth of data to examine and calculate what the Jedi and Clone Trooper will do, and Rex has his emotions and gut instincts. It's the entirety of the Clone Wars captured in a microcosm. As the war game came to an end and Kalani insisted they had won and threatened to kill Zeb, the Empire arrived. Ezra pointed out neither the Republic or Separatists claimed victory in the original war. Order 66 happened and the Empire was created. Palpatine took advantage of the weakened state of the galaxy to build his new government. Ezra's logic convinces Kalani to work alongside them in order to fight the approaching Imperial forces. The combination of precise information and strategy with Rex's and Zeb's skills and Kanan and Ezra's lightsabers was successful. And both the Rebels and the droids escaped on separate shuttles, leading the Rebels to claim a new Phantom replacement shuttle. I thought for a moment that the super tactical droid Kalani might join the Rebellion and help defeat the Empire by providing tactical analysis for the Rebels, but instead he analyzed the Rebels' chances of success against the Empire and found it to be entirely too small to join forces and help. The more I consider this episode, the more impressed I am with what it actually accomplished. Brett Friedman, the writer on this episode of Rebels, wrote multiple episodes of The Clone Wars and married the two series seamlessly with relevant and important themes. I much preferred this week's episode to last week's and in the end really enjoyed it. Well that's all I have for Star Wars this week. Next up we're going to talk about Westworld which is easily becoming one of my favorite shows on television. We're going to talk about the fourth episode Dissonance Theory.
Maeve finds several clues to her past lives. Meanwhile, Dolores travels with William and Logan, and Robert has lunch with Teresa. This week's episode went on several different adventures, so I guess Dolores is as good a place as any to start. Last week, she had her awakening that ultimately resulted in her killing her would-be rapist, which led to her running for the hills and ending up at the campsite of William before passing out. This week picks up with her joining the bounty hunt with William and Logan. We also see her having her regular psych evaluation with Bernard in the glass box we've seen a number of times before. However, this time, it caused me to ask the question of whether that is an actual place where they are interacting in person, or a virtual exam room, and she is still in the park, but communicating only through her internal communications with the park systems, and Bernard is at a terminal in the control room. I ask this question because if she were taken out of the park, wouldn't William and Logan have noticed her absence? Plus, every time they talk to her and ask where she is, she says she's in a dream. Which makes me even more convinced that this is how they communicate with the host while in the park. Sort of like her little daydream when looking at the moon with William in the wilderness later in the episode. Normally after one of these sessions, the scene changes to her in her bed with a soft focus wipe transition, but this time it was replaced by a clear cut to her waking up in the dirt. I guess this is just a little personal mystery for me to figure out as we go forward with the show. Luckily, she has the smitten William by her side to protect her from the park's administrative checkup team. Otherwise, she'd have been recalled by the in-game sheriff who would have turned her over to park officials for maintenance and a system check. What I find interesting about her story this week is that even though her story isn't groundbreaking this time out, Dolores is doing something extraordinary by joining the adventure. She's essentially seeing the park through the eyes of the guests. And with that, Logan sees things purely as a game, one with Easter eggs that get you access to cooler stories, while William is looking for deeper meaning by playing the game, or visiting the park. The other big adventure of the episode is the Man in Black's quest for the maze, which kicked into high gear this week after not being touched upon at all last week, and it looks like he's found his egg-laying snake. From his comments about having found everything the park has to offer except one thing, it got me thinking that it's almost like he's exploring the game to create the definitive internet walkthrough of the park. To experience at all, you've got to dig around and find the Easter eggs. In his conversation with the tattooed armistice, we get a sense that he's using death as a demarcation for meaning. This is a sentiment echoed later by Maeve, who, or when she realizes that her memory flashes are real and that they confirm that nothing in their world matters. The Man in Black continues to drag Lawrence along the trail, which really makes you wonder who Lawrence is and why he's so instrumental to the goal of finding the maze. Is he just a foil for the Man in Black, someone to talk to along the road? Or is he a vital piece of the puzzle behind his creepy daughter dropping riddles on where to go next? I tend to think it's probably the latter since his daughter is the one that gave Dolores a clue when she ran into her either in a glitch or in actuality at the town where the sheriff attempted to return Dolores to her loop. Whatever the case, the Man in Black story arc was the highlight of this episode. With one match, one pistol, and one idiot, the Man in Black busts Eschaton out of the prison in exchange for the backstory to the snake tattoo, and he learns that Armistice's path, and now his own path, collide with the infamous Wyatt. By the way, an eschaton is the last part of a divine plan or the world during the post-historic era of God's overt apocalyptic reign. So our outlaw leader's last name literally means the end of the world. If that's not some sort of foreshadowing, I don't know what is. Now, I spoke a moment ago about Maeve. She's losing her robot mind and probably needs a new sound card installed. She discovers that she's been drawing the monster inside her head and hiding the sketch at least a half dozen times, proving that her nightmare is repetitive and that she can't always remember having it. Also, that she might not be able to escape it. She first suspects that she's not crazy when the little girl drops her homemade Westworld cleanup crew doll in the dirt, and Eschaton confirms that the native culture worships them as a kind of god from hell that looks over their world. Like dreams dreaming of Hawaii only to wake up with sand in your bed. Maeve has Eschaton dig out a bullet fragment from her gut, proving that her hallucinations actually happened. So far, she's been the loneliest character, dealing on her own with her family being slaughtered, remembering her past, and seeing all her friends' bodies dumped in an ash pile in the Westworld backstage area after waking up during surgery. Fandy Newton has been masterful this far, and I only expect even greater things from her as Maeve slowly creeps towards enlightenment, or at least awareness. In the final showdown of the episode, we have a face-off of sorts between Teresa and Dr. Ford at the hacienda that Teresa's family visited when she was a child. Now, I do have to ask, who brings their kid to this empty Disney world of death and sex?
For me, anyways, on this series, the corporate intrigue isn't all that interesting, which may be why we really haven't seen much of it, but all the characters involved are actually really interesting. I can never tell whether Dr. Ford is a clear-eyed pragmatist who's comfortable with the capitalist bent of his part, or if he's a lunatic hiding behind a friendly smile. And you gotta give credit to Anthony Hopkins for that. He also explains his position as God, which makes Teresa sort of God's middle management. Whatever he has planned, it requires some massive creative destruction so that Hacienda she visited as a child, the one he sat her at the exact table she sat as a child as a massive power play, that won't last the night. Also, how about the little nugget buried in that discussion? The park tracks and keeps all the information about what people do at the park, who they kill, who they sleep with, what stories they take part in, and keep all of that in perpetuity. Talk about big data. <laughs> Final thoughts on the episode and some things to think about going forward. What is the man in black actually eating while he's on the trail? Even the rabbits are robots, aren't aren't they? Or do they provide some sort of meat on top of the robotic undercarriage? Why does the cleanup crew wear hazmat suits? No one else seems to, so what's toxic that they need protection from? How often do guests mistake other guests for hosts? Like, all the time, probably, right? Yet, we haven't seen that just yet on the show. When is it going to happen, and what does park security do if two humans start fighting each other? Sure, they can't kill each other with their handguns, but what about fistfights and non-firearm weapons? Anyway, just some things to think about and things to keep an eye on as we go forward. Alright, we're going to wrap up this week's reviews with Michael and Tim's Supernatural review and discussion on the episode entitled Mamma Mia. Hey everybody, it's Michael J. Petty here. Welcome back to the Supernatural segment of the Across the Airways podcast, where we're talking about this week's episode of Supernatural, Season 12, Episode 2, entitled Mama Mia. And with me today in our makeshift roadhouse studio is my really close friend, good friend, best friend, and fellow hunter, Tim Cook. Hey guys, it's great to be back. Loved Episode 2, and I can't wait to get into dis- some discussion about it. Great. Okay, so coming off last week's episode, Sam is still being tortured by British woman of letters, Tony, and Dean and Cass and Mary are on the hunt to Safe. To be honest, my biggest anticipation this episode, and even last, was that moment of finally getting to see Sam interact with his mom. Not his mom from the past, not his mom as a ghost, not Eve pretending to be her, but Mary Winchester in the living flesh. Living being the key word here. I was very satisfied with how this episode handled that by allowing Mary to be the final force that helped both Sam and Dean break free from their captivity, showing her motherly love for her boys. That was a really cool moment and her being able to hold her own with Tony, who clearly has some fighting skills of her own, was very impressive for someone who's been out of the hunting game for over 30 years. Tim, how do you feel about Sam finally getting to interact with his mom for really the first time? And how do you think her relationship with Sam is going to be different from that of Dean? And how awesome was it to see Mama Winchester in action and even be given John's hunting journal? Yeah, no, that's a great point. That was one of the first things I wanted to touch on was uh, Sam giving her John's journal. I think that'll help fill in a lot of the blanks for her. But I think the interesting dynamic between the two is going to be fun to watch all season because we've kind of already established how Dean and Mary are going to interact. So it'll be really interesting to see how Sam and Mary do it. I think Sam and Mary are going to have a bit more of a um, an affectionate relationship than Mary and Dean will. I think we see a very telling scene right at the end of this episode when Dean's harfing down his pie as he loves to do and Mama Winchester's kind of over there judging him a little bit for it and even Sam too. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how Mom interacts with them for the first time in you're right. I definitely liked seeing Mary Winchester save her boys. I mean, one of the things that we've known about for seasons now, but we've really never got to see is she was a hunter. She knows what she's going up against. She's done this kind of stuff before. She tried to get out of that life and for a little bit she did. But it's interesting because, I mean, even Dean said it earlier in this episode where he's like, oh no, you shouldn't come with me. I I don't want to have to worry about you. If I'm worried about you, I can't be worried about Sam and it'll be hard for me to hunt with you around and she's like, you know, I've done this before. I've been a hunter before. I know what I'm doing, Dean. You don't have to watch out for Mama over here. She can take care of herself. So it's interesting to see them kind of get a third amigo to the team almost and have someone who is able to bust them out of situations just as much as Sam is able to get Dean out of situation and Dean is able to get Sam out of these situations. Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting too to see what her hunting training experience was really like. I mean, we know that she kind of hunted as a family with her 
parents, Samuel and Deanna, and I think that was her name, Deanna, because Dean was named after her mother. But yeah. um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see if, you know, if there's a monster or some sort of creature that she's faced that maybe the boys have never faced and to see her kind of maybe expertise on a certain kind of creature. I think that would be yeah. an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think it'll be interesting because this episode does bring up a couple of questions for us. Like Mary has the line, I think about halfway through the episode where she's like, I don't know what it's like to see Sam again because everything that happened with the yellow eyes is my fault. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see why she blames herself for yellow eyes. And also, I love the fact that they're actually kind of giving a throwback all the way to those first seasons and um, yellow eyes back then because he was a great villain. And I love to kind of dive deep, deeper into that, especially if we get to see how Mary Winchester was involved with that entire situation. Well, I mean, I think kind of already know just based off that not flashback, that time travel episode in season four, because we see her sell her soul so that John can come back to life after Yellow Eyes kills. That is true. So I, I think there's definitely a reason. And I think she knows that that's exactly what it is because she re- remembers the demon. She remembers, well, kissing your father would stick with you, seeing as how he's possessing <laughs> her dead father. Um, <laughs> so I mean, so I definitely think that that is where she's going off of with that. I don't, I don't know if there's anything else specifically, but it would be interesting to see if we would get to go into her past, if we would get to see maybe flashbacks of her time with her marriage to John towards the beginning. Mm-hmm. Maybe her looking over her shoulder, maybe her kind of doing what Dean did when he was with Lisa and Ben and kind of just being a little suspicious of everything, but also trying to live his life. So I think I think that would be a cool plot line to explore as well. It definitely would be. I mean, I think they've done time travel very well. They don't do it very much, but when they do it, it's mainly so we can get a background and information that's kind of pinnacle to our understanding of the whole story. So I'm all in favor of them doing maybe some more time travel so that we get more of Mary's backstory going into. Uh, going into season 12. I agree. I think it'd be a great way to, you know, having them time travel even back to the past maybe to encounter her would be sweet, but I also think that you could even just do it the same way they did Sam's flashbacks to his year without Dean in season 8. Yeah, exactly. So, it'll be interesting. I also am interested to see, again, how the dynamics between Cass and Mary work out. I know we talked a little bit about that last week, but they seem both a little fresh to the world, and Mary seems to be picking it up pretty fast. I mean, she had a line where, you know, she was talking about the internet and she didn't quite get it right, but she <laughs> seems the internet. Yeah. <laughs> but she seems to be picking it up pretty fast, so um I'm I'm hopeful that we'll get to see some good interaction between her and Cass too. I loved uh Cass's line to her in the episode um about keeping him company <laughs> outside because oh, yeah. he couldn't yeah. go in the house. <laughs> <laughs> about how the whole place is warden. He's like, Yeah, I could use some company out here. <laughs> at that I didn't expect that at all for her. I thought that was very funny. Yeah, it was. Now go Going right off all those points, something I really I felt that was very interesting that Tony asked both Sam and Dean was their relationships with both Ruby and Benny, respectively, and what that looked like. We all know that Ruby was a huge part of the third and fourth seasons of the show and really helped throw the brothers into the whole Angel Demon War plotline of the Kripke era, while Benny had been a big part of Dean's development in the Carver era of the series, specifically in season eight, even being mentioned and seen briefly in season 10. Do you think that the writers dropping these references could be a hint for something they might try this season? Um, or the return of someone like Benny, or is that just too much of wishful thinking on my part? And what I'm, and what I, I guess, what I mean by that is, do you think that it's possible we could be seeing brothers team up with maybe another monster type character or demon type character, or someone who isn't Castiel this season? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would love for them to throw back these references, and I mean, to see Benny come back would be pretty interesting in terms of the plot. I do think it's a little bit of wishful thinking. As much as I wish they'd bring Benny back, and as much as I really want the writing to be fantastic for season 12. I do love the show dearly, but my faith in them being able to carry out plot lines from past seasons is a little bit damaged because of seasons like 10 and even 9. So I would absolutely love to see the return of Benny. I don't know if the brothers are in a mindset to be working with monsters and demons anymore. Maybe he comes back as a, uh, you know, as a monster the week episode and Dean and Sam have to deal with the turmoil of how they're going to deal with Benny. Or maybe he comes back as even a a bit of a plot point later in the season, I think that would be a great idea. Um, I think it would be a great reference to the Carter era, and I think a lot of people would be interested to see that. And they always do a great job with returning characters on this show. Minus one, but we're going to talk a little bit about that later, I suspect. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I agree. I think it is a little bit of wishful 
thinking, but I, I do, I did enjoy the Benny character. I didn't at first, but I, I liked where he ended up towards the end of the season. And I, I love that Taxi Driver episode where mm-hmm. Dean has to kill him and send him back to Purgatory in order to save Sam. I, that's a fantastic episode. And I think that because of how close Bat, Benny and Dean ended up being because of their time in Purgatory and because of even living on the outside, you know, mm-hmm. they would, they would call each other brother in the same way that Dean or Sam would call Castiel their brother. And that's yeah. something that they didn't really explore a whole lot after that. And I maybe I just hope that they do. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I just don't know that. I mean, we've seen the brothers work with a lot of different kind of um, non-hunter entities. You're right. There was Benny and, and Ruby and even to some extent Crowley. But I think with the Men of Letters getting involved this season, I'm hoping that part of the plot point of the Men of Letters this season is to help refocus Sam and Dean in this idea of them getting back on track. And what I mean by that is, you know, hunting monsters, killing things, not necessarily working with the bad guy to take out a bigger bad. I mean, we see that a little bit this season with Crowley because his plot seems to be fairly disconnected from the brothers at this point. And I would like to see the guys get back to just dealing with monsters and killing them and not necessarily working with people like Crowley. Um, It's something we didn't really see, especially in the early seasons of the show. Other than Ruby, we saw a very hardline attitude towards things like demons. I'd kind of like to see that come back from the brothers this season. I agree. I do agree with that 100%. But moving on from that, onto the Crowley and Lucifer feud. We were both of the same opinion, Tim, that we hate Rowena. Oh, yeah. And when Satan refused to kill her in this episode, I was honestly upset, as I'm sure you were. Very upset. (laughs) But with the devil now in control of the Book of the Damned, one of the most powerful witches on the planet, if not one of the only witches now on the planet, all while regaining his strength, I think he actually has a lot of, has a huge fighting chance against the self-proclaimed King of Hell, something that we weren't necessarily sure of last season. Speaking of Lucifer, I loved Rick Springfield's performance as the devil this week, and I'm honestly looking forward to see him again on the show. I thought he was much more menacing than Misha Collins' portrayal last season, yet still in continuity with not only last year, but also Mark Pellegrino and Jared Padalecki's performances in the role to a point as well. Crowley, on the other hand, seemingly used his best resource in this episode and lost the gamble, so my guess is that he'll turn to the Winchesters, or maybe just Castiel, who, with Marriott around now, has a little less to do, for help in his revolution against Lucifer. Tim, what do you think about Lucifer's chances at this point, and what do you think Crowley is going to do now? Also, what were your thoughts on Rick Springfield being in this episode as Lucifer? Okay, if you're going to cast anyone as Lucifer, Rick Springfield is the best option. Not because he's the devil or anything in real life, just because he kind of has that look, that kind of uh, dark angel look going for him. And I think his casting was absolutely perfect for Lucifer. I loved seeing his performance this week. It was fantastic. I would love to see him. I I really, really do hope they keep him on as Lucifer for a majority of this season because I absolutely loved his performance in this episode and I'm super excited to see where he takes the character of Lucifer. On that note, I think Lucifer has probably been one of the most interesting characters, mainly because of how many different actors have had the chance to play him and how consistent they've been able to keep his character even through multiple actors. So I commend Supernatural for being able to do that. On to the fight between Crowley and Lucifer. I definitely think the brothers are going to have to get involved at some point, but I would like to see the early season focus more on Crowley versus Lucifer. I think getting the brothers involved is kind of a late to end season plot point in my opinion. I don't want to see Lucifer get dealt with too early in the season, especially because we kind of talked about last episode um, where we'd like to see the season finale end up. And of course, the longer Rick Springfield is on is the devil, the better, in my opinion. So it'll be interesting to see where they take this plot. And you're right, Crowley kind of used his his big ploy and it failed. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where Crowley goes from here and what Crowley's going to try and do in an attempt to take out Lucifer. And my question right now is, who's in control of hell? I mean, we saw Crowley on the throne at the beginning of the episode and then Lucifer was on the throne. So, I mean, is hell in the middle of a civil war right now again? I mean, we've had a couple in the last couple seasons. Or is one of them pretty strongly still in control? I mean, we saw demons hunting after Lucifer on his orders, so or cleaning up bodies for him. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how hell plays into this. And if we run into any other demons this season, what side they fall on, what's kind of going on with the rest of hell as well, not just Crowley versus Lucifer, but kind of the entire spiritual realm. And um, it'd be interesting, I know, 
we kind of talked about Lucifer kind of talks about also taking back heaven and Crowley mentions to him hey why don't you let me run hell while you go after heaven it will be interesting to see if Lucifer also tries to go after heaven again I mean he did that season and it was a pretty interesting interaction between him and the rest of the angels so it'd be interesting to see if they bring heaven into this conflict as well yeah no I completely agree I think that would probably be where you would have Castiel come in and I think that Crowley even going to Castiel for help not wanting necessarily the brothers to be involved because of his hatred for humanity not that he doesn't hate angels too but I I think it it makes a lot more sense and I think that it also gives Castiel a big plot point to actually you know pursue as opposed to you know he's he's tried fixing heaven he's tried doing this he's tried doing that and nothing has really stuck for him they've kind of like lost focus with him since season five maybe even season six and i i think that this season actually has a big opportunity with castiel to bring him back to the forefront and make really make him important to the overall plot again especially if the devil is still out there and him teaming up with crowley for that cause um could be a very interesting comparison to season six where him and crowley were working together to find purgatory yeah well i think it'd be an interesting plot uh, this season for castiel if castiel kind of gets in this mindset of like yes he did what he did last season was the right call letting lucifer go so that they could defeat amara but i mean this season we could easily see a cast that's like well lucifer's still on the loose and I was kind of the one who pulled him out of the cage, so it's as much my responsibility to get him back into the cage, especially if he starts terrorizing like other angels and stuff like that. I think you could easily see a Castiel plotline that's like, look, this was my fault. I pulled, I mean, I got him out of the cage, so now I have to go put him back. And I'd kind of like to see that from Cass, where he has a motivation outside of wingmanning for the Winchesters, so. I agree. I agree, and it really helps both other leading men that are not Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki to still lead their own plot line and be a focus of at least a, a chunk of the show. Yeah. Well, I think that's mostly all we have to talk about this week. I, I, I really did mm-hmm. like this week's episode. I'm very excited to, to keep going. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Crowley headlining the B-plot and, you know, them just figuring out, not figuring out, with them just finally rescuing Sam, is there anything else of importance that I'm failing to mention, Tim, or that you would like to briefly discuss I, I i don't think there is anything major but the only thing from this episode that i think we haven't brought up yet that just deserves a mention before we end this podcast is it's interesting to see that tony apparently is working a little bit outside of the rest of the organization um when it comes to the men of letters because we saw another guy get called in today to kind of rope tony in so it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic works out and i'm interested to see where that goes because it seemed from last episode she was working under the full authority of Men of Letters, so I'm interested to know where she went off the rail. We kind of found that out a little bit this episode, but it'll be interesting to see that dynamic between her and the other Men of Letter they brought in this week. And I really want to know who the mysterious guy with the crosses on his hand is. I, I, yes. that, that's a very... You and I have both seen the movie Priests, and I almost wonder if he's the mm-hmm. Men of Letters version of a priest. So, that, I don't know. Yep. We'll find out. But that being said, guys, we'll end our episode discussion there. But before we go, Tim had this great idea last week after the recording about now that we've finished our first two episodes, what monster of the week to use X-Files terminology or freak of the week to use Smallville terminology kind of episode would we like to see in the coming coming season? Uh, and there are a few monster episodes that I would like to see this year, such as a vampire episode, which I always love, a gin, which we haven't seen in a while, but most importantly for me, a Wendigo, because I loved the original Wendigo episode. But what I really do want to see now that Andrew Dabb is kosher runner of the show is the Winchesters go back to Chicago for a conclusion of the Bloodline story that was told during season 9, originally intended to be a backdoor pilot for Supernatural Bloodlines which was cancelled before the pilot was even shot. I want to know what happened to Ennis and David and if they've teamed up to take down the five monster families of Chicago and I really hope that this comes to fruition sometime this season or eventually and with Bloodlines writer and creator Andrew Dabb being one of the showrunners of the season like I said I feel like it's definitely a possibility. What monster episodes would you like to see this season Tim? Well, I I know that the two of us have talked about it a lot, but we both really liked their their kind of pilot for Bloodlines. Um, and I think both of us were pretty disappointed that we never got to see Supernatural Bloodlines happen. So I definitely want to go back to Chicago and see a, kind of a conclusion to that plotline and um, definitely just kind of get a feel for what's going on with those five monster families. I mean, that seems like a pretty big thing going on in Chicago. So I'd love to see a conclusion to that plot. Um, Not to mention it 
it's our hometown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're super close to Chicago, so being able to see them do some stuff in there would be pretty fun for us being Chicago area residents. The other thing, I know I mentioned it when we were talking after the last episode, but there's one thing I really want to see, and I think you know what it is, but I want to see Ghost Facers again. <laughs> I know they kind of wrap that lot up, but man, do I want to see Ghost Facers again. Those guys are so funny, and I think we're overdue to get a Ghost Facers episode, so I don't know how they're going to rope it back in or um, if they're even going to try, but I talking about Monster of the Week kind of stuff, I would definitely love to see another Ghost Facers episode, and I do agree with you. I think a Jin would be a pretty interesting one. We also haven't seen a Wendigo in a long time, so I'd like them to use some of the monsters. We've only seen once or twice, and not some of the ones we kind of see maybe once or twice a season. You know, we always see some ghosts. We usually either see a werewolf or a vampire in, in a fair amount of seasons, so I'd like to see them just kind of pull up some really creative monsters and uh, do some throwbacks to ones they caught really early on that we haven't seen since. Like Rawhead? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or that guy that they trapped in the coffin at the end of season two, the immortal guy who never dies. That would be really interesting, yeah, who is harvesting all the organs to kind of replenish himself. Doctor, what's his name? It starts with a B. Dr. Bender or something? I don't remember what it is. I don't know. It was something close to that, but that would be that would also be a pretty interesting guy to have finally come back. And I mean, I, I always love when they do throwbacks to their early seasons, so it would be pretty cool to see. Yeah, I agree. And definitely Ghost Facers are definitely a priority, especially since they <laughs> broke up at the end of the last episode we saw them. So I'd yeah. love to see them back together. Mm-hmm. Oh, and of course a Jody Mills episode's always great. So oh, if they want to throw the if they want to throw them in there with the girls, I don't think anyone uh, I don't think either of us would be arguing about that either. No. <laughs> we had way too much fun with that episode last season, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you. All right, guys, that's that's our uh, discussion on Mamma Mia this week. We will be back next week with our discussion on Season 12, Episode 3, The Foundry. But until then, take it away, Nico. Hey, thanks, guys, for the Supernatural review. Wonderful as always. Now we're going to move into the closing and tell you that on next week's episode, we'll continue the fall 2016 TV season with a review of the next episode of Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, Westworld, and Supernatural from Michael and Tim. Make sure to send in your reactions to Walking Dead by noon Pacific time the next day, that's Monday, to help enrich our discussion on Walking Dead. I'm also open to you guys sending them for Westworld, Star Wars, or even Supernatural. We were also going to start reviewing Doctor Who's class, and unfortunately it's not being broadcast in the U.S., so I thought it was unfair that because I can watch it on the BBC iPlayer, for me to watch it and review it when everybody else isn't able to. So I'm going to hold off and wait until it is available in the United States, and then everybody else can watch it at the same time I'm reviewing it and maybe we'll get some people calling in about that one because we we all know everybody loves Doctor Who. Also, DC Nation continues with episodes of Gotham, Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. Also be sure to keep an eye out for Steve, Wu, Nikki, and the rest of the Marvelverse crew doing the Marvelverse podcast and their coverage of the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universes. But for now, and much of this season, we're going to roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast. Get at our website, acrosstheairways.com. Get at acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows. Available as their own individual programs. Get the iTunes store. Get Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, get our network. We have the DC Nation podcast. Located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Get that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast. Located at Marvelverse podcast podcast.acrosstheirways.com Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheirways.com which reviews Marvel comics related TV shows and movies. Again, we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheirways.com Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheirways.com In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheirways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes core game of thrones like the walking dead doctor who star wars rebels supernatural and more including sitcoms such as the big bang theory got the muppets also you can listen to across the airways the dc nation podcast thrones cast the game of thrones podcast got the marvelverse podcast got the mixed radio station code by jack stifle stitcher radio or if you use apple devices download the podcast box app got if you're on a windows or android device you can download our apps from the amazon marketplace got the windows marketplace got a regular windows or windows phone app got for how you 
you could contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we could improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle, got Google Plus, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, that's 773-809-3363. Call someone sending us an email. Please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God, the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Alright, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki, Amy, Wu Kim, Joshua Mercury, Steve Nostro, and Michael J. Fetty, I'm Nico Restek, and until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys, and I hope you all survive the season premiere of Walking Dead. Through hell's gates The ground shakes And valor waves And so it begins Vengeance waits Fury raise With our last day So it begins So it Now return to our regularly scheduled program.